0: The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. Luke chapter 18, and uh, we're reading uh, verse 9 through 30. And if you're reading from the Black Bible, uh, there's one in front of you. Uh, you can use that that's on page 824 starting with Luke chapter 18 verse 9 he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt two men went up into the temple to pray one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be be exalted. Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked him. But Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belong the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these things I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. And Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God, for it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle Than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there is is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come, eternal life. You may be seated. As you just
1: heard, we're back into the gospel of Luke. And if you saw some of uh, the Slack posts that I made this week was trying to sort of grease the slicks to get our mind flowing back in the direction of Luke, it's been a little while, Uh, Lord willing. uh, We will be in Luke all the way up and through uh, the end of Luke 24. Um, And, Lord willing, we'll be able to preach the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ on Easter Sunday. And so, out of gospel, the gospel of Luke. So, I'm looking forward to that as well. If you remember, we actually started the gospel of Luke back in the summer of 2022. And so, we've been chewing on Luke for a little while. And hopefully, it's been serving you as it's been serving me. This morning, what you'll notice is that there's kingdom of God language all over the place. And so we're titling the sermon this morning, Enter God's Kingdom. That is what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about what it looks like to enter God's kingdom. Main idea this morning is this. Entry into God's kingdom is available to all who come to him like a child. For the children here in the service, teen to toddler, this is your big treasure right here. This is your big treasure. You want to write this down, main idea these verses can be summed up in this sentence, entry into God's kingdom. It is possible for you to know that I have entered in to God's kingdom, and it comes to those who come to God with the heart attitude and the faith like a child. So I'm going to pause, I'm going to pray. We're going to ask for the Holy Spirit to empower the preaching of his word, and then we're going to see what Jesus has to say to us from the text this morning. So let's do this. Lord, move Lord, come in might, tune our hearts to hear right now. Would you, Spirit of God, usher in a holy hush? Would you help us to hear Jesus clearly this morning? Would you help us to wrestle with the words of Jesus this morning? Would you help us to see the relevance of this text for our lives this morning? Would you help us to see our need for the mercy of God that can be found in Jesus Christ this morning. In short, we wish to see Jesus. Help us to see him this morning, Holy Spirit. Assist me, Holy Spirit, to proclaim your word clearly to your people so that this message would land on our hearts and on our minds Not like water off a duck's back, but would land on our hearts and minds and sink in deep, stirring our love for the Savior who gave his life so that we might live for eternity with him. It's in your name, King Jesus, that I pray these things. Amen. Extremely famous parable in front of us. Parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. If you know the Gospel of Luke, you probably know this parable. But most of us, my guess, have not gone up to the temple to pray this past week. You probably don't know a Pharisee, and you're probably wondering why your buddy who works for the Internal Revenue Service for Illinois is getting thrown under the bus right now this morning by Jesus, the tax collector, right? Most of us are like, what's going on? Like, we have categories, but we sort of don't, so what I want to do is go into story mode, Sit back, relax. What we're going to do is, I'm going to tell a story this morning to try to bring the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee into January of 2024. Two men, Jack and Joe, went to church one morning. Now, Jack knew his way around, for he'd been brought up in the place. He'd gone to Sunday school since the age of three and all those sorts of things. He knew, too, that his parents would be there sitting in one of the other pews watching him proudly on that morning. He wanted to make sure that they saw him, so he walked right up to the front and sat in the front row. He bowed his head, and he shut his eyes for a few moments. He'd seen his dad do this after all, and he knew that it looked very holy. Jack, you see, took his religion very serious. He carried a big Bible. And he knew all the latest Christian songs. He liked the image of being a highly principled young man. Unlike many of his friends, he never consumed alcohol. He never smoked. He did no drugs. He was also extremely self-righteous about sex. No messing around for him with his girlfriend. He and his girlfriend had very intellectual conversations about politics and the finer points of theology and the latest news stories and Things like this. Instead of the weekend bar crawl, they went to prayer meetings. Reflecting on his life a few moments before the service began, Jack glowed with inward satisfaction. How reassuring it was to know that you are a good Christian. Nothing to confess, nothing to feel ashamed about, nothing. Good grief. It can't be. Out of the corner of his eye, he caught a familiar figure who just entered the church behind him. It's Joe, he thought, incredulously. He has no right to come to church, that old hypocrite. But if he'd been able to read Joe's mind, he'd realize that precisely the same thoughts were going through his mind, too. What right, Joe thought, did he have to be in church? He hadn't been in church for years. In fact, he felt thoroughly uncomfortable in the place. He kept looking around nervously as if he expected somebody in authority to appear at any moment and tell him he had no business to be there that morning. He was unsure where to sit or if there was some special ritual he should observe before he committed to stay. Didn't Christians cross themselves or something before they sat down, or was it Muslims who who do those sorts of things? He didn't know and he could not remember. In the end, he just slid cautiously into the back row. Oh, no, he wailed inwardly as he looked forward. There's Jack. He's seen me. I will never live this down in the neighborhood. Joe crumpled up, tucking his legs under the pew, his head sagging down between his knees as he tried his best to hide. As you may have guessed, Joe was not the religious sort. In fact, he had a reputation for being known as that guy who couldn't get his life straight. If there was trouble in his neighborhood with the police, they usually came to his door. His fingers bore testimony to his involvement with nicotine and drugs. There was a distinct smell of beer on his breath. And in fact, he'd only left the bar a few hours before that service had just begun. Why on earth had he even come to church that morning? Was it because of the fight he had a few days ago at home? thrown out by his mother because he had been stealing from her purse again? Or was it the sense of humiliation he was feeling from Julie slapping him about the face last night and telling him in unambiguous four-letter words to get out of her life because she discovered that he was also sleeping with Karen? Yes, It was both of these things, and it was honestly neither of these things. Somehow, as he tried unsuccessfully to drown his sorrow at the bar, he had been overcome by a sense of just how dirty he actually was. What a mess he had made of things. And suddenly, sitting in the back row, guilt and shame brought tears to his eyes, a blush, to his cheek and a lump to his throat. Oh, God! He sighed quietly into his clenched fists. Oh, God! I tell you, it was Joe who went home that morning, a believer, and not Jack. You see, when Jesus gives the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, whether it's Jack and Joe two other names that might come to mind what you have are two men two prayers but one spiritually dead in sin and self-righteousness and one spiritually alive who is entered by faith into the kingdom of God Continuing his unavoidable march to Jerusalem in order to accomplish salvation for sinners, we find Jesus here. Luke 18, verse 9, Luke tells us, telling a parable for a very specific reason. If you look at verse 9 in your Bible, Jesus is telling a parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and thus treated others with contempt because that's what self-righteous self-congratulatory religious people do after all. This parable is a key answer to the question that was posed to Jesus. If you remember the weeks where we were looking at the end of chapter 17 and the beginning of chapter 18, what we said is a key discipleship theme had come to the surface and it revolved around that question that was posed to Jesus in chapter 17 verse 20 people came to him and said Jesus answer this question please when will the kingdom of God come when are you going to return when's this whole shooting match going to wrap up and it's all going to be done And so Luke says we need to, as disciples, pause and consider this kingdom of God language. We hear it, we say it, we use it, we sing about it, but most of us don't know what that means. We don't know how to think about the future aspect of it and the present tense aspect of it. And so Luke says we need to think about the answer to these questions. So in answer to the question, when will the kingdom of God come, notice, remember, Jesus replied by first explaining that his unavoidable return. It's unmistakable. It'll be certain. It is happening. There is a future tense idea to the return of the king and his kingdom. But now Jesus is shifting the focus. You want to know when will the kingdom of God come? You need to know future and you need to know present tense. And so beginning with this parable, Jesus shifts this kingdom of God idea right into our laps. Just because there is a future aspect to God's kingdom does not mean all this talk about Jesus returning and all this talk about his kingdom coming has nothing to do with you in the present. That's the temptation you and I have. Man, this whole, when will Jesus return and this whole idea of eschatology and the coming of Christ and all these things, most of us go, okay, that sounds good for like People with PhDs in theology and those crazy people who have all those weird end times conspiracies. Sure, that's food for them, but like, I don't know what this means for me when I go to my blue-collar job on Monday morning. Like, I don't see what this has to do with me at all. But in fact, this idea of the present tense nature of Christ's kingdom and how we can enter into his kingdom now... It has everything to do with each and every one of us here this morning because the only way that you or I can be prepared to meet King Jesus when he returns on that future day is by entering his kingdom now, today, and in the present. You see, the timing of Christ's return and his kingdom is just not for those crazy end times conspiracies. The timing of Christ's return and his kingdom, it is hope for real life sinners today. It is assurance for everyday disciples. And I say this because like when you look at verse 17 and you see Jesus using this receive the kingdom language, and then when you see in verse 24, he uses this Enter the kingdom of God language. What you need to know is that this kingdom of God language is Bible talk for eternal life language. Receiving the kingdom of God is salvation language. So whenever you read your Bible, your Bible is very happy to use all different kinds of word pictures to explain this common denominator truth that is true of every man and every woman, which is this, we are sinners who need to be saved. Our sin means we are not right with God and we need to be made right with God. And one of the ways Jesus talks about the need for you and me, sinners to be right with God, is to run it through the lens of kingdom of God language. So when you hear Jesus talking about those needing, those people who need to receive the kingdom, enter the kingdom, what you need to do is automatically go, okay, Jesus is talking about eternal life. And the reason why I say this is because that's exactly what's going on before us. Jesus is talking about receiving the kingdom of God like a child and then right when you go into the rich ruler in verse 18, he immediately asks the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This is not two different things. It's the same thing. And then when you jump over into verse 24, he is talking about this rich ruler and Jesus says how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Verse 25, it's easier to go For a camel to go through the eye of a needle, then for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And then notice the question immediately on the lips of people, then who in the world can be saved? See, they understand what Jesus is talking about. Salvation language, eternal life language is entering the kingdom of God language. Jesus is talking about the salvation of souls right now when he gives us this parable. Membership in God's kingdom is one of the many ways the Bible talks about how a sinner is made right with God, and this is exactly the emphasis before us in our text this morning. The Bible is extremely clear that sinners who humble themselves before God, sinners who confess their sin to God, sinners who turn to God alone for salvation, these are the ones who are made right with God. It is these who can receive mercy from God. It is these who can know with deep-seated assurance that I am a member in the kingdom of God because God has told me I am. This is our only hope of being made right with God. This is how you, me, or anyone can gain entry into God's kingdom. And that's what we see starting there in verse 9. Point number one is this, if we're going to try to answer the question, well, how then does someone enter into God's kingdom? If all of this is kingdom of God language, salvation language, it's important to ask the question, well, how do you enter in then? Because you see a lot of people trying to enter in, in our text this morning, who Jesus says, you will not enter into the kingdom if you run at it in the way that you're attempting to run at entry into the kingdom. So point number one this morning for our little ones, this is little treasure number one. It is this, that entry into God's kingdom is available for real sinners, real sinners who seek God's mercy. Notice how Jesus teaches this truth with a parable, contrast. Two attitudes of heart. So if you notice that there's really not a lot of talking out loud going on in the parable, it's Jesus giving you a peek into the attitude of the heart of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Verse 10, two men who went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus. So Jesus says, notice the heart attitude of this figure. God, I thank you that I am not like other men. I'm not an extortioner, I'm not unjust, I'm not an adulterer, I'm not, even, I'm not even like this tax collector, thank God. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I get. But notice then, in direct contrast to the Pharisee, here's the hard attitude of the tax collector. Standing far off, he would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beats his breast, and the only prayer he can pray is, God. I need your mercy because I am a sinner. Notice the contrast. Both men pray to God, but their attitude of heart is drastically different. The Pharisee stands apart from everyone else. He makes himself the subject of his own prayer. I think he says the word I like five times, right? I and I and me and I'm, I'm better than... And like, so his prayer is completely... Yeah, it's a prayer to God, but it's entirely self-centered. He despises the tax collector... Anyone with eyes to see in the temple who are also there praying in the parable can look at the guy and go back man, like, like if anyone's getting into the kingdom of heaven, it's surely this guy. He's fasting twice a week. He's giving tithes of all that he gets. If anyone's really serious about this church God stuff, it's obviously this guy. Just look at his life. But the problem is that his unquestionable devotion is purely self-righteous. His hope of rightness with God is in himself. Righteousness is a big churchy Bible word, but if you can think of it like this, righteousness is this idea of rightness. How do you know you are right with God? Jesus is saying this Pharisee here is hanging his hope of rightness with God all in himself. His attitude of heart is that while yes he's maybe willing to admit he's not entirely perfect he is very happy to admit that basically in the grand scheme of things he's good or he's at least the good in his life outweighs the bad thus when he lifts his eyes and looks over at the tax collector who is beating his breast and standing far off and obviously praying as well it is very easy for the pharisee to compare himself to a dirtbag sinner like that tax collector over there as he glows with the inward that satisfaction that while real sinners exist out there in the world surely he definitely is not one of those real sinners in contrast observe the tax collector his heart attitude is one of total dependence upon God's mercy for eternal life. His only hope of acceptance with God is if God atones for his sin. That's what's going on in his prayer. When he says, God, I need you to have mercy on me. Be merciful to me, a sinner. In the original language, the idea packed into that phrase, be merciful to me, is atonement language. It's sacrifice language. What he's recognizing in this moment like Joe in our story he's come to the place where he's like my my sin is real i see it Clearly, the guilt and the shame that are right to feel as the weight of sin presses in on his heart is leading him to see that I've tried to erase and wipe clean the guilt and shame of sin in my life in one thousand and one ways, and there is no detergent powerful enough to erase the weight and the guilt and the shame of sin. So God, if something is going to cleanse my heart, it's got to come from you i need you to atone for me because if you don't ain't nothing going to get it done that's packed into that little prayer of his god be merciful to me a sinner so in humility notice he doesn't even lift up his eyes to heaven in anguish over his sin he beats his breast and his confession is i am a sinner first person singular how many of us are so awesome at being able to say things like, Well, I know this guy's a sinner, and my coworker, she is a real big sinner. But then you go and you stare at the man or the woman in the mirror, and you begin to go, Well, not my, I think I'm looking at a hypothetical sinner, maybe. Fake sinner, probably. But the confession here in the moment is I, I, me, ain't no one else. Like, I'm not casting my life on the feet of anyone else. I'm not wearing the shoes of anyone else. I'm not saying, you know, it's Greg Healy's fault, God, that I'm here this morning and saying this prayer to you in these sorts of ways. Oh, God, I am here because I am a sinner. Thus, he cries out for the only remedy to his problem, God, your mercy, I need you to give it to me. While the Pharisee looks inward for his salvation, notice the tax collector looks beyond himself and outside himself for his salvation. When he looks in the mirror, again, he sees no hypothetical sinner. He knows himself clearly to be a real sinner and need a real mercy. And this is why the punch comes in verse 14 of Jesus saying, I tell you, this man, which man? The tax collector. He's the one who went down that morning to his house justified rather than the other. The word justified is glorious, it is beautiful, it is an obvious church word. Most of us aren't using the word justified typically in our day-to-day speech, but it is a word that is worthy of you to figure out what it means when the Bible uses it because when Jesus says this man is justified, to be justified means to be declared right with God. And it's not because I step before God and say, God, I'm telling you, I'm right with you to be justified is heaven's declaration it is God's declaration it is God saying because you are trusting in me and you are leaning in me and you're looking to the only hope of salvation you have in me I am telling you you are right with me it's glorious it's hope-filled it's assurance to the soul That God, when he justifies you and declares you right with himself, he is the one telling you, you are right with me. Not because of you, but because I, in mercy and grace, am gifting you a rightness with me. It's glorious. To be justified by God is glorious. To be made right with God is to stir praise. So Jesus' comment that the tax collector went down to his house justified means that this sinner is right with God because God, according to his own great mercy, has declared it to be so. Amen. Have you ever asked yourself the question, how can I be right with God? How can I be right with God? Have you ever tried to answer the question, How can I gain entry into God's kingdom? Those are the same questions, just worded a little bit differently. In love, right now, in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, in great love, Jesus has just shown you the answer. You don't have to guess, and you don't have to to keep searching. It's to come before God like the tax collector in humility and full confession owning. It is me, me, myself, and I. We're the sinner, Lord. And if I'm going to be right with you, if I'm ever going to have the hope of my name being written down on the roll call of kingdom citizens, entry into your kingdom is your gift that you've given to me. I need your mercy. Have you ever prayed a prayer like the tax collector? Have you ever prayed and asked God, would you be merciful to me, I'm the sinner? That's the invitation of the parable. Entry into God's kingdom is for those who seek God's mercy in humility. Now, in verses nine through thirty, like if you want to use this kind of language, the nucleus, the gravity of these verses nine through thirty, it all orbits around this parable. Because immediately coming out of the off the heels of Jesus saying, "I tell you, this man went to his house to be justified," Luke says, "Hey, there's some babies all of a sudden that are showing up on the lap of Jesus," and you're like, "What the what? Like we were just, what's going on here?" And then all of a sudden there's a rich ruler, right, trying to earn his way into heaven. Like, what's going on here? What you just need to know is this. Luke has told Theophilus, I'm writing a very orderly account to make sure beyond a shadow of a doubt that you have the certain assurance that Jesus is who he says he is and you can be made right with him. So Luke, the doctor, is being very doctorly right now.